Welcome back to the 217th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the SCOTUS decision about the National Guard in Texas versus the Border Patrol, how Biden should take over the Texas National Guard through federal authority, and the UAW in announcing their goals for the future and a special one when it comes to the election in 2024. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So there's lots of talk about what's going on. I, we actually shifted the schedule a little bit in the ordering of stories because I am recording this a bit ahead of time. Uh, because I will be away for a little bit. So we're getting some episodes out early, and this is such an important topic that I thought we should address it. So do you see this constitutional crisis, as it could be called, do you see it going any further? Do you see the state backing down, or do you see independent Texas taking it all the way until we see some major ramifications like, you know, Joe Biden nationalizing the National Guard? Or I don't necessarily know if he would nationalize it, but... Uh, Take it over from the inside. So let's jump to our first story that comes from the Daily Beast. SCOTUS sides with Biden and says feds can cut down Texas's razor wire. So that's very, very explicit language. They can cut down the razor wire. Doesn't mean that they can prevent them from putting up new ones. That's at least the argument from people on the conservative side of the aisle. And before I get into all the, the talking points from either side, I want to read a quote from this article. Quote, the Supreme Court will allow Border Patrol agents to remove razor wire installed by Texas at the U.S.-Mexico border, part of a narrow ruling Monday that at least partially brings to the close of the ongoing spat between state authorities and federal agencies over border policy. The court ruled 5-4 to four in favor of an emergency request by the Biden administration with Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett joining the high court's three liberals to grant the federal government's request. So this, and they, they outline it pretty well here, which is it is a very narrow ruling. And the aspects to which they're talking about is not saying outright that the federal administration, the Biden administration, has the ability to restrict Texas from controlling its own border or putting up different measures to protect its own border. Rather, it has the ability to remove obstructions that could get in the way of properly operating the federal border. So it's really a jurisdiction claim. And that is the whole root of this battle from the very beginning. When Texas started putting up different barricades in the water, razor wire, the idea here was, one, it's going to be hazardous to the people coming across. That's the moral, ethical issue. But at least on a legal level, this is a jurisdictional issue because it falls between the federal government, which also has a border there, and the state itself, who has a border with a foreign nation. And, you know, a lot of the, the talk has been about who actually controls that border. Because we know if Texas and Oklahoma have a border with one another, they are respective states within our union. They have jurisdiction over their own borders, controlling in and outs. And we have an overarching federal system which allows things to be uh, deregulated by the states. There's not going to be many barriers between people going from Oklahoma to Texas because we have a 
overarching government that is sovereign and ensures that every single state is not mistreated and there's a legal system just like to protect the individual rights of a person, the individual rights of a sovereign state. So if there's a dispute between Texas and Oklahoma, they're both bought into the American system, they're going to take it to the Supreme Court, and then they're going to let it ride. This idea where you're not dealing with uh, a state in the United States and a state on the other side. No, you're dealing with a state within the United States and then a sovereign nation, a state, a.k.a. Mexico. This is a different situation because normally this falls underneath the federal jurisdiction. I, I feel like I'm, I'm repeating what the main talking points are in this one, but we really do need to consider what is going to be the outcome of some of these uh, different decisions because at the end of the day, if the state is superseded by the federal government, then the federal government is going to be the only authority on what happens state to state. And the reason that this is so important later on, that this is a point that I heard from some Republicans who didn't necessarily love the idea of the Supreme Court ruling the way they did, but they were making that argument that it's actually really practical because if they're ruling that it is more, it does, you know, the state does have some right to put up some stuff, but at the end of the day, the federal government is going to be the end-all, be-all. They have the right to at least remove some of those barriers that you're putting in place, then that means that they can also demand, the federal government can have jurisdiction over the border and demand that those states also put up a wall. And that's going to be really useful for the Republicans when Donald Trump gets back into office. They're going to say, hey, we, no, you can't even sue it. Like, you can sue us, but the Supreme Court is probably just going to fall back on this previous jurisdiction where it says, at the end of the day, the state can do as it pleases, but at the end, the federal government is going to have the final say over the matter. And the other reason that this is so important is because Texas is dealing with a large influx of migrants. And this is perceived by some people as an invasion, at least in pure rhetoric. It is called an invasion. Well, now, which is interesting that rhetoric gets taken into uh, beyond the pop culture and actually gets taken to the legal sense. But now Greg Abbott is saying, no, it's an actual invasion. And because of a certain clause in a certain section within the Constitution, it actually enables the state to protect itself from invasion if the federal government can't respond or, in this case, will not respond. And this is the issue with hyperbole, which is, hey, okay, we understand there's a whole bunch of migrants coming across the border and uh, it does seem a little bit outrageous and we're going to call it an invasion because that's inflammatory language. Well, guess what? If you've set up the standard in pop culture that it can be called an invasion and then somebody takes up the mantle and tries to make it legal or use the legal definition of invasion, they're going to Okay, so let me put it to you this way. If it isn't so used in the popular culture, then when a governor wants to put forward the argument that this actually is an invasion, there's, it's less likely that people that actually believe there's a problem, but they haven't been using that particular term, they might be like, whoa, okay, you're going too far here. I mean, you're calling it an actual invasion versus when we've used inflammatory language, not to mean it's exact legal meaning, but it's a real-world colloquial meaning, then you can see things like this come up, and Greg Abbott's making the political ca calculation, well, everybody's already calling it an invasion, so it's not going to be that big of a deal if I try to stretch it to the legal term, and maybe I can use this to my advantage. And this is getting trickier and trickier because the Biden 
border control, they can get rid of the razor wire. They can get rid of some of the extra barriers that Texas has put up. But that also means, under the narrow ruling, as the Daily Beast has talked about, that Texas can actually put those things back up. So my question is, are we just going to have an endless cycle? Because I feel like Texas, Texas is going to be loud, but I don't think that they're going to necessarily actually try to fight Border Patrol because that's not going to go well for them politically because right now they feel like people feel like who are at least semi-leaned to care about immigration that Texas is doing God's work. And if they actually say, no, we're going to stop the Border Patrol from doing its job, even if people agree the ends that they're trying to reach, the means that they're using may dissuade them from siding with them and they may become the bad guys. So I think Texas will fold a little bit here and they'll just keep on putting things up since the narrow ruling allows them to. So are we just going to have an endless cycle? Are we just going to have tens of thousands of man hours going into putting things up and then the next day the Border Patrol is like, okay, here are our mandatory hours taking this down. They're going to call in their extra staff. They're going to have a whole bunch of overtime. Like I bet the authorities who get paid overtime for putting up things and the ones on the other side who are getting paid to take it down, they're like, yeah, guys, hey, keep farming this political situation. We're getting a whole bunch of overtime, and we're just doing the same thing over and over again. I'm sure they'll get frustrated at some point. They'll be like, this is absolutely pointless. It's just a political battle. But I wouldn't be surprised if for a while they're like, hey, I mean, a little bit more money. So what else has Abbott been doing? Um, at first, he just let, released a letter. He talked about how he's given a few different letter, letters to Biden. And now with this new declaration of invasion, he's trying to make it a constitutional argument and get this case, because Biden's definitely going to sue now that he's taking new action. They're going to try to get this up through the court system and then get this in front of the Supreme Court so the Supreme Court doesn't take a light-footed, narrow stance like they did on the last one. No, they want this to actually be talked about in purely constitutional terms, and they want to set the stage for what is going to happen in the future. Are these states at the bottom of the United States, who are, or even at the top, who have borders with foreign countries, are they going to be able to set their own policy over the federal government, or is the federal government going to be the absolute authority on protecting the sovereign nation's borders? And you could have multiple opinions on both sides. I think at the end of the day, there's a practical, there is a practical argument to having Texas control its borders when you have a mass influx of migrants and you don't want them to come in. Then there's a practical argument to having Texas control their borders. And if you want the federal government to shut it down when other states may be more than willing to let migrants in, there's also a practical argument to having the federal government have the ultimate say over what happens. But we need to look beyond practical. We need to talk about the principle of the matter. And we also need to remember, just like we talk about with every single other thing, it, whenever you're on the Republican side or Democrat side, it's, oh, this is breaking a norm. Whether it's getting rid of the filibuster, whether it's changing it to a simple majority, whether it is adding a... Uh, provision where the chair to vacate vote only needs one person. All of these things breaking norms, they come back to bite people in the butt. And will sub, how should I put this without sounding super inflammatory, will subverting the federal system, the federal border protection system for the state system, will that come back to bite Republicans in the butt? It is very, very well possible because guess what? If somebody comes in who wants to have tighter border policies and California and New Mexico and even Arizona sometimes goes blue and Texas, what if it goes blue? Then 
they say, no, actually, yeah, like your border policy is great, but we're actually going to enforce our border our way. Republicans are going to be infuriated. And what if Democrats, they end up arguing, no, the federal control needs to be absolute. And then someone gets in who's a Republican, gets in and argues, oh, no, we need to be super strict on the border and I'm the federal government, so I'm going to have my say. Then guess what? The Democrats are probably going to argue, no, 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 he doesn't have the authority to do that. We should let the states do it. But nope, they've set this precedent now. This is a battle, which is actually Greg Abbott's attempt here. It is his intent to get this to the Supreme Court and to make this a precedent that sticks. But I don't know if he's going to love the outcome necessarily. Maybe while he's governor of Texas and no matter who's in there, it's either a Republican who's going to be in favor of his policy or a Democrat who is not in favor of his policy, his policy, but it comes down on the side of the states actually being able to enforce their border over the federal government. If it comes out that way, he'll be happy either way because while he's governor, then he can lock down on the border however he so chooses, but it may have negative repercussions later on, just like the Democrats may have it come back and bite them in the butt too. So this is a very, very important case that's going to make its way up to the federal court system and then the Supreme Court. And it's also going to set a precedent going into the next age where we really have had a court recently that stands on the side of more federalism, dispersing power, trying to get rid of certain regulations or the power of certain agencies to make certain regulations. And if this takes us another way towards state sovereignty or more state sovereignty, we could see even more outrageous policies being passed in one state or another. And this idea of test laboratories, they're not just going to be normal test laboratories, they're going to be the ones dealing with toxic chemicals and these crazy ideas on how they're going to run their state. And while, hey, I may not live in one of those states, it may not affect me, it could raise national divisiveness because we live in a time where if something happens in Texas, you hear about it in Minnesota immediately. Or if something happens in Washington, you hear about it in South Carolina immediately. So it's going to raise the temperature because even if it's not happening in your state, it's going to feel like a prescient social or political move that could eventually affect you and people get outraged over things that don't happen in their state all the time. So I think it is going to set the precedent going into the next at least 10 years. That's assuming that the court stays similar to how it is. But, you know, it could very well change. I'm not saying any of the conservative justices or the constitutionalist justices or the originalist justices, however you want to frame it, I'm not saying any of them are extremely old, but Clarence Thomas may want to retire here in the next 10 years. So this could set the precedent for how this court goes forward, but also how things develop politically within the United States. And I know it seems like I'm being hyperbolic. And I, I let's be clear, I am being a little bit hyperbolic. We don't know what's going to happen. But from where I stand now, this looks like it's going to be a big deal. I could very well be wrong. But I think the, the reason it's gotten a lot of coverage on both sides is because it's something that both people care about. And even if it's not changing that much, it will at least be blown up that way. So I, I think that you should at least keep your eye out for it. So let's jump to another precedence-changing uh, sort of event that also comes from the Daily Beast. And what is this precedent that they're trying to set, that they're compelling or asking Joe Biden to do? Quote, Joe Biden can and should take over the Texas National Guard. 
Quote, earlier this week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott released a statement in which he suggested the invasion of migrants at the southern border, and yes, I'm doing it because they have it in quotes, uh, allowed him to flaunt federal law and defy authority of agencies like Customs and Border Protection and the Department of Homeland Security. In the face of such brazen lawlessness, hosts like Andy Levi, Danielle Moody of the New Abnormal, insist the President Joe Biden should act on the suggestion of two of the state's U.S. representatives and take control of the national Texas National Guard, a similar action to one undertaken by President Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1957 when Arkansas used its National Guard troops to forcefully block the integration of black students enrolled in Little Rock High School. And there's also the, after Brown versus Board of Education, there were uh, different s- states that were going to shut down, and they were saying, oh, no, we're not going to integrate our schools, and the National Guard was taken over, and then they step in, and they say, no, you got to keep your schools open. we got to let these uh, students who have been disadvantaged or these, these black students who haven't been allowed in these white schools, we have to open up these places to them, and we're going to stay here until it is normalized. So there is precedent in the past for a president taking over the National Guard. There's no doubt about that. But is it truly different than the, or similar to the situation now? I would argue, no. We're not talking about ensuring uh, rights that should be protected throughout the entire United States and actually affirming those rights. We're, you could argue this is actually negating rights. It's negating the rights of the citizens to have a protected and un... How should I say? If you want to use Greg Abbott's word invasion, a non-invaded state, but I don't want to frame it that way. It's more that the, the immigration of migrants changes the demography. It changes the situation. It adds stress to all these different tools that could normally be used by citizens like welfare programs or even just the resources of nonprofits. So are you actually okay to take over the National Guard to deprive people of things that they should be expecting from their state, which is a secure border? Versus the argument could be, well, hey, we're also worried about rights here, but not just civil rights within the United States and of our citizens, but the human rights of the people coming across. We're actually using these forces to secure the border and facilitate the migration of some of these people, or at least the, how should I say, the allowing them into the system so that they could very well claim asylum and actually get away from any sort of political violence that they may be facing, and we want to provide a place for them to come. I think that would be Joe Biden's argument if he's presenting it to the media. And by taking over the National Guard, we can protect these people's rights to seek asylum in a safe country and to be protected and to find freedom and economic stability within the United States. That's, that's great. That's a great human rights argument, sure. But should the human rights of people who are not citizens of this country come over the rights of the people that are citizens of this country? That will be, if it was framed that way, that would be the main contention. And I think that's why taking over the National Guard in this instance is different. One was ensuring rights of every single, and yes, I guess you could say that it's depriving the rights, in the previous case, that it was depriving the rights of uh, white people to just have exclusionary zones for themselves. But is that inherently 
good? Is that an inherently good thing? Is that the function of government to create insulated localities or situations where anybody can exclude anybody else they want? No, that's not what the government does. That is not the government's purview. Versus in this other instance, when protecting the sovereignty of the nation, the borders of the nation, and protecting the citizens of that state or country from any sort of outside influence, that is a genuine purview of the government, protecting the rights of everybody within the system to allow them to have equal footing to stand on legally, just like they were doing after the board decision when they nationalized the uh, guard in certain states in order to ensure that these places would become integrated. That is a genuine function of the government. Is it a genuine function of the government to ensure that other people can come from outside your country into your country? I guess you could say yes. Yes, it, it is part of the government's job to facilitate the migration into the country in a safe way. Sure. But then we have to ask, of those two things that the government should do, which should have more priority? Protecting the people within its nation already or ensuring that there is a really efficient, safe way for everybody to come into the country. I would say protecting the people already in your country would be more important. Maybe I'm just overly practical. Maybe I'm just really mean. That is always possible. But this is the kind of battle we're going to be having, not just a political one, but also a values one. And we always miss the values part of the conversation. We just make it political talking points. Oh, the Democrats, they are just trying to change the demography of our country. Or the uh, Republicans, they are just haters. They do not care about anybody. They are heartless. We always do this superficial thing and we always try to just throw jabs at one another rather than examining the values underlying it. The values underlying the argument to let people into the nation is, one, we are a kind, caring place that takes in those who are less advantaged and provide them an opportunity to grow and to continue to succeed within our economic system. And the value system that underlies protecting the border and being a little bit harsher on the policy is this is a country that is separate from the rest of the world in that we are, I don't want to say special because they might not characterize it this way, but we are a place where there is great opportunity and we want to protect that opportunity for the people that are already here and provide that for other people, but done through the correct means, not simply crossing our sovereign border and violating our sovereignty as a nation. So basically their underlying view would be the sovereignty of the United States comes before the kindness of our heart and our willingness to take in other people to provide them an opportunity, which you can have that value battle all you want. And I think we should have, because if we actually had value conversations, we could work to a middle ground. But no, we just have political talking points that we throw back and forth. And yes, I'm not disagreeing that I have thrown some of them here or there throughout this. I mean, I've been reading from articles. I've even thrown some of the other ones that have been put out there in the media. And I'm not trying to say that you, you can't have these political talking points. But if we never actually get to the value propositions of any of the arguments, nothing's ever actually going to get done. You can't even have a fruitful conversation because you guys are just talking past each other because you don't understand where somebody else is coming from. And I think that was, what, first year of college that they explicitly said that, and most of high school we were discussing around that 
or trying to understand somebody else's argument, not necessarily put yourself in their shoes, but understand their logic. So maybe it's just the the place that I went that I was very fortunate to go to that had these sort of conversations and laid it out this way. But I, I think that's a, a basic tenet that we need to re I don't want to say inculcate, uh, but we need to reestablish as essential. And in this age of bustling and booming and going and moving, like, mm, it's going to it's gonna be hard. Everything moves so fast that to actually talk values is going to take way too long. I mean, it took me, what, three minutes to explain the values that both the sides hold and why it's important. Most people, they have you know a minute and a half when they're trying to get their point across or, what, 120 characters. So it's, it's tough. I don't disagree with that. So let's jump to our final article that comes from Common Dreams with the headline, UAW chief says billionaires, not migrants, are real threats to the working class. And the reason that Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, is framing it this way is because a lot of Republicans, they want to go out and say that immigrants could be coming in and taking your job. So therefore, you're going to be outcompeted in the market and they're willing to take a lower wage, so on and so forth. And there's not not validity to that argument. There are definitely certain sectors that are going to be affected by migrant workers. Now, if you have stronger protections ensuring that employers can't hire people who do not have a social security number, a green card, a work visa, anything like that, maybe you can mitigate it a little bit. People will still take on that risk because it will help their bottom line. But if you have strict enforcement policies in place, then sure, that that could definitely hold. But the opposite of his argument, or the other part of his argument, that it's billionaires that are the problem, I, I think there's part logic to it, and I partly disagree. If he's saying that just being a billionaire alone makes them the problem, no. And I don't think he's being that simple. I think there are genuinely good-minded billionaires that he would probably get along with. But when he starts framing it as the billionaires set the narrative so that it's something that can divide us, I think that is a, a true statement to some degree. And I don't want to say that it's 100% true because I don't think it's just billionaires. I think that's where the left sometimes go, like the far left goes astray, which is saying, ah, it's just the rich people. It's just the oligarchs. And they do sometimes clump in other people like the elites, quote unquote, or the people with power. But very often they frame it as a purely money thing. And I don't agree with that. I agree that there are people who have interests, whether or not they're super wealthy or just have influence, that want to keep their position. They want to keep anything that they have gained from it, whether that be their influence. You could frame it as power, but just the position that they have gotten to, they feel as though they deserve it. They feel as though they have worked for it. They feel as though it is proper that they are there. And in order to protect themselves and their interest, they very often will raise points that are very divisive. I mean, there's a reason that you see a rise in racism language after the protests in New York at Occupy Wall Street. It's because race has always been a very divisive issue. Also, we just had our first black president, so that brought it back into the forefront of people's minds, like, okay, this is a serious thing. There's lots of reasons that these things come up. I'm not saying it's just simply one thing, because President Obama did in 2012 run on a little bit more, I don't want to say the underlying racism in the United States, but he definitely stoked uh, race tensions in order to really solidify his minority base. And then you also have Republicans who were pushing back 
And some of them were genuinely pushing back against his policies. And some of the older class were probably like, no, I just, I don't like this kind of guy. I don't want to have our power ripped away by a minority coalition because it feels as though the predominant group that has been operating at the highest ends of society for a long time, they're probably scared that it's getting taken away, that, oh, there really is a minority coalition that is coming together. So they're using certain type of language in order to say, hey, no, no, uh, this old coalition of of the, I don't want to say because, let's be clear, there wasn't always a coalition of white people. That's not how politics works. Just like there's not a purely coalition of black people. Black people, white people, everybody votes on different sides of the aisle. And guess what? None of them are a monolith. But there's definitely certain undertones, and uh, even undertones, I don't like that word. There was certain messaging that went out from some of these older class Republicans or even just older class voters who were saying, hey, this coalition of the minority has come together. We also need to come together as the group that has been at the forefront of America, and we need to make sure we're having these conversations about how our voices can still be heard in a largely growing majority of the minority, if that makes any sense to you. So there's lots of different factors, but I don't think it's a coincidence that after, you know, the revolt against Wall Street, that the narrative changed a little bit. A lot more divisive politics, identity politics came to the forefront. It was already existing, but it got pushed to the forefront by all of the different media companies and all of the different people who, you know, cared about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and different sexual orientations, and all this sort of language really came to the front. It was already in academia, but then it became ever more prevalent within society because people on the news are talking about it. People are writing articles about it. It's also coming out of the schools. And some people may have dismissed it before because they, they didn't see it in the real world. But then when you know they get out there and they start seeing stories about it and they learn about it in college, they're like, oh, this is the, the real world applications of it. This is how we see... Uh, people who are of different races being put down. Oh, all these different cases get put out there, all these different case studies. There is a concerted effort to tell a very particular story. And I'm not saying that it is the billionaire saying, you will talk about this to any company they work with or any of their friends in media, but they are influential in nature. And all they have to do is say, hey, I care about diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm going to push this in my company. And then stories come out about it. And it kind of catches on because it was in academia. Students were learning about it. And now they're seeing in the real world, they're like, oh, okay, this is how it is. They get passionate about it. Other business leaders say, oh, wow, okay, so people actually care about this now. Maybe I should start talking about some of these things. And then the basis of all of this upper movement, since it is created by the elites, since it is given down to the people from the people on high who have influence, they actually end up getting their way. And I don't want to make it that simple. I'm not saying it's it's a class warfare thing. I'm not saying that it is simply them trying to oppress the people below them. No, it is simply them trying to protect their own interest. And at the end of the day, you're going to protect your own interest. I, I'm sorry I, if you have this delusion that everybody can be kind-hearted, everybody can just live and let live they can just love no you're gonna when you're in a position where you've worked hard you feel like you've worked hard to get where you are you feel like you deserve what you have as i outlined at the very beginning then you are going to be selfish and try to protect what you have 
even if that means saying things that you don't necessarily 100% believe, that you don't think will be good for the rest of the country, but you will believe, believe will be good for you. And there's a lot more of a conversation we can go into on that one. And honestly, that was going to be one of the main stories that I led with today, but I wanted to move it a little bit because it still had something to do with the border, so I felt like it was still important. But also, it was this sort of conversation that I really wanted to talk about. Also, in here, Fane says nobody for the... I thought it was funny because the speech was on... I believe last Wednesday, uh, he, he said, nobody is going to get our endorsement for president unless they believe in the UAW values. And then they gave their endorsement practically the next day to Joe Biden. And I'm like, I don't know if Joe Biden is 100% for a general strike. We also know that he shut down the rail workers strike. Uh, so like, is he 100% behind? No, he's like 75% behind. But when Fain is kind of just giving away his vote, it's like, oh, okay. So no, the, the union in this case is just working with uh, Biden because they probably see him better than, as better than Trump, but they're not actually standing on their values and saying, no, Biden, you won't even get our endorsement because you're obviously not pro-union enough. I mean, you're not a literal union member. You're not out there saying that unions need to run the economy. So uh, <laughs> you're probably not union enough, especially for Mr. Militant Sean Fain. So that's enough on that one. Let's jump to our daily delight. And this one comes from Parade Pets. The headline reads, Cockatoo's funny sing and strut moment is going viral for being perfect. And I don't know about perfect, but it is pretty darn awesome. So I'm going to read the first paragraph, and then I will describe the video for you. Cockatoos are easily the top three sassiest birds on the planet. No matter how you slice it, they're just fabulous, and they know it. Most importantly, of course, cockatoos are excellent singers. If you don't think cockatoos have what it takes to make it in the modeling world, just look at this video. You will change your mind. And I'm telling you, this guy, he's up, down, up, down, foot first, kind of throwing the hips out there. He's got his plume in the front out kind of up, and he is excited, too. It's not just like he's a model who looks dead inside. He is happy to be wearing that uh, cuckoo or cockatoo couture is probably the best and funniest way I can put it. So if you want to see that video or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. And since I'm recording this one a little bit early, and I also recorded tomorrow's from the perspective of you listening to this on the first day, tomorrow's Twitter tirade, that is a pretty good one, in my opinion. I recorded it while I was walking last night, and it, it kind of just came to me. Now, is it the most philosophical, best, well-thought thing in the world? No, just like most of my podcasts, it, it's, it's half-baked because I'm only one person, and, and I'm not uh, 100% there with my mental development, just as I don't think anybody truly ever is. But it was a good one, and I would suggest going over and listening to that one. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.